So we'll, we'll just we'll just jump in like it's been properly introduced. And okay. Chair, thank you for being here with us, Brad. Thanks for coming back. Just continuing the conversation that that's been running anyway, and then we let people eavesdrop a bit on some of it. So, Cherith, why don't we just start with you? Kind of tell us what stirred up as you were listening, and we'll we'll see where that conversation takes us. Yeah. So let me um start first on a personal note. Um, last week. On this day, Friday, last Friday, was probably just one of the darkest days for me in this year, and maybe in a year. And it was just having to face like all the stuff that has built up over time. Yet again, Brad, you have prayed with me about this stuff before, but it's trying to enter back into the space of writing and trying to figure out what is the thing that just keeps becoming so overwhelming there. And through the grace of God's people, um, just listening and processing, that didn't last very long. Like he brought mm. me out of that within a 24 to 48 hour period with really wise, sane, like as you, as the end of your podcast, um, the last part of, of talking about like, what does that fire do? Like it's, it sort of grounds us, right? It brings us back down to earth. And I feel like that's what happened. Mm -hmm. Like instead of living in the shadow, that was the shadow of the Valley of death where things are way too big and cast really big and seem like they have a life of them all their own. It was just so gracious, but anyway, so I, I was kind of just praying into this week, um, Lord, without like, coming and measuring what does a good job look like in this very hard thing in which I feel very weak, um, but really grateful that you would like to do this with me. I'm not going to try to figure out what it is I need to say to you in the writing. I just want to sit with you and hear what you would want to say. And, and then I thought, well, I need to do that in the company of others. So you two were my starting place there. And so it was just a time of amazing um, worship and reflection and going, okay, this has been part of this weekend, right? Which is where, what are the fires burning? Like what is God in his goodness and truth and beauty consuming precisely so that we can be free to be who we are, which is to be like Christ. Mm -hmm. Right. In a nutshell, I feel like that was what your conversation was bringing us back to. And and so it was so interesting to me to um, have you, Brad, be talking in the ways that you have around the Beatitudes and have that fire imagery be what it was. And then for you, Chris, to say, OK, I want to think about it in terms of like just another ring of the burner, right? Or just like yeah. a bigger fire, not because God needs more to consume, but just the layering. Let's yeah. just get like a little more heat on this and and see where that goes. And and as I was like listening, I was also keeping notes and then be like, oh, that forget that. That's not my note. You you just said that, right? Or Brad <laughs> just said that. But I was like, oh, good. We're all in this conversation together. But I think the thing that came up for me as you began to say, I'm kind of wondering like where the fires are. 
And I'm looking at Ephesians 3 as I sort of lean toward this, if Luke 6 sort of sits squarely in the center. Mm -hmm. And if Mary's song and the shaping of this kind of a submitted life in in even saying yes to the son that she knows, right? I thought that was a really beautiful point, which is we don't know who we are saying yes to when we say, Lord, whatever child you want us to have. Yeah. But there was something just about that whole thing that was very striking. Brad, the fact that you've been singing that and and letting that declaration and song shaping you. Um, so I just was like, yeah, of course, Ephesians 3. But then as I was just sitting there listening to you, I thought, Lord, what is that about the knowing? And and Brad, I think you also made the reference, like there's no way that Chris is going to finish this project, whatever the project actually turns out to be, which doesn't spend so much time in First John, right? Because that's just his language throughout, which is, we know. Yes. We know this because this. We know that God's love is in us because this. We know that we belong because this. How do we know? We know. And it's none of this is like the intellectual knowledge. It's always the love that mm -hmm. surpasses knowledge, right? It's the to know. Absolutely. The love that surpasses knowledge. And and yet it's never spiritualized. It's because here's the evidence. Here's the fruit. And ultimately, I would say that the places where John just lands that fruit of loving each other, knowing that we're loved by God, in our lives together, that the world can see this, that the sign of the spirit is among us, is he says, in this world, we are like Jesus. And he says that right as the preamble sentence to what you were talking about, Brad, in terms of that, that kind of love of being like Jesus in this world is the thing that casts out fear, right? The fear of judgment, because we've already see we are already held in the one that we're not only going to be like but the one that we are becoming yeah. like already and so i thought okay that's sort of the space for me of thinking about where if we could talk about some of the stuff that needs burning up i thought so so much of my way of processing things in the last couple of years has been trying to listen to my own fear and also the fear of others because it feels like fear becomes the defining thing behind the craziness that we take on instead of the likeness right is we're always trying to mitigate some fear and then we're out of the storyline and that has to get burned up and and so as your talk was being completed and then you were leaving open these big spaces in your own project, right? I was like, yeah. well, if, if I could be sitting at the table with them and we were doing this as a collaborative project, Lord, what would you be saying to me? Because we are in this collaborative project Absolutely. of life together. And so <laughs> I don't think that you are obligated to any of this, but I want to run this by you because this I think is the thing that Jesus is trying to speak to me about. Um, in my own life, hence in my writing. And I think it's going to be part of our Hebrews conversation through the course of this year. And that comes down to understanding um, the way that we think about 
weakness. Hmm. And because I was following the progression of the child, right? And that Mary as the child yeah. of the child, that the more we mature and become truly childlike, then we become the ones who actually are not trying to protect ourselves or others against weakness. And, you know, especially the closer in we get to the things people think we're supposed to be expert at. Right, right, right. Like right. that's where the shame can come so fast or the, the questioning of our judgment around what we did because somehow we think that when we're operating in our strength, <laughs> that it should feel like strength. Right. And then it doesn't, right? It just, it's like, wait. And it's not just insecurity. It's like suddenly we just realize how much this is the weakness of God. Like that's what he's going to call the gospel, right? This profound dying and rising. And, and so how do we think about this in terms of weakness? And so as I've been wrestling and praying and reading, I've been a little confused. And so I'm just bringing that confusion to our conversation today about the differentiations, whether there should be some between um, strength and power, because those are the contrasts, right? Like very often it's the strong and weak, and that's both in positive and negative. So let's just put aside for the moment for, um, weakness within our scriptures as creatureliness. Yeah. Right? So not weakness versus strength in terms of gifting or like when the tribes are weak and like all this stuff, right? But but what happens when weakness gets contrasted with God's power? And so it's God's weakness, not just our weakness, but in the incarnation, it becomes God's weakness that's contrasted with God's power. And then also just, and then contrasted with God's strength. What does that look like? Both of those as sort of gifts of the spirit. And can I just add I, something quickly there? Please, please. I don't know if it'll be relevant, but I'll bring it up that when Jesus sends out the 12, <clears throat> He sets up a contrast between authority and power mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that I'm giving you all authority to overcome the power of the enemy. And that power in that context does seem to be a problem. Right. So, mm -hmm. but it may not be relevant to this stream. It just was another contrast in my head that I see in, in um, that has something to do with like, there is a divine strength and love that overcomes the kind of, uh, uh, worldly and demonic power of coercion so that may be actually important I, it and it may be important for a different stream of thought that we do elsewhere oh, but I, I think it's really important brad and and if for no other reason like going back today and and thinking well what else is paul praying and saying um and i'll explain why i jumped back into the beginning of ephesians thinking both about Chris's place in Ephesians 3, but my conversation today, weirdly, of all the places in scripture that we're gonna spend time in, in, in New Testament text is 2 Corinthians, mm -hmm. like the whole pick and book, right? Because it's just yeah. this, you know, whatever, how many letters are woven together into this thing? We don't have to talk about that, but it's just one big crazy mess of weakness and power and strength in terms of 
the things that God wants to burn up. Yes. That people want to see. Mm-hmm. And they want to see them in Paul, and that's going to validate Paul, and that's going to validate their lives, and they are pushing off the ones who are going to detoxify them and de-intoxicate them, like sober them, mm. <laughs> like Paul, right? Because they're like, no. And because something about how they feel about themselves and everything else that is happening welcomes the crazy and welcomes the powers and welcomes the shiny sparkly things right and this the self-reflected glory that comes back and right in the middle of all of that strength and weakness language is this language of he who was who in the and it's again present participle him being rich yeah became poor mm-hmm. and then i tried to talk about this whole collection but also just about what is poverty and riches look like. So I thought, well, where else does Paul talk about that? That in these prayers, and Brad, that's to your point, is he's like, so what am I praying? What? That you would know, right? That you would have the eyes of your heart enlightened, not your brain cell, but the eyes of your heart that only God can reveal, that you would know, well, I'm just not going to try to paraphrase a good prayer. Let's just read it. And this is um, NIV reading because that's what's right in front of me here. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And I think that's what I'm taking away from your talk is the burning off of everything that doesn't know self-giving love that isn't true. Yeah. That you know and, and it's the unknowing and it's the unknowing of what's not true right yes yes yes, yes. Yeah. well and yeah i'm going to get to this in a moment finish finish the prayer let's, okay. but let's so not miss that is, point about unknowing okay so hold on to unknowing right there and i pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you so the hope of calling the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. And then Brad, to your point, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And every name that can be invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And then as he carries on, he's like, and God in his great love for us, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions, by grace, by this compassionate self-giving life, you have been saved. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms that he might show this incomparable grace or riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us through Christ. And then he's like, so it's, and it's about grace and it's about faith. And it's not about works. You are the work, right? You're the handiwork. So if God can burn this other stuff out of you, you'll stop thinking it's about any of the stuff that you want to put in, whether it's spiritual stuff or worldly stuff or the combination of them. But 
what would it look like to be his image, his handiwork, to be able to do the works of Jesus in the way of Jesus in the world? And that the authority of Jesus that Jesus has received at the Father's right hand is exactly what he's sharing with us. But it's a power to raise from death to life. It's not a power over. It's not mm. the power of the evil one. It's not the powers of this world. It's like the, all the right power and authority finally come together, like right there in him. And then he goes, oh, but as inheritors, it's yours too. So if we can keep burning off the stuff that keeps you from being able to be who you are, you could actually become shaped to look like and then listen better and actually hear the voice of Jesus to invite you to be doing what he is truly doing in the world instead of you controlling that idea and that mission and that um, program for the day or anything else. But anyway, I, I think, Brad, there's a very important place there and it's probably a whole conversation to itself, but I think it's really important on um, that piece that you added. And now to go back to the unknowing. Yeah. So I think what I'm hearing, and Brad, I want to frame this as a question to you. What I'm hearing is what if we read second Corinthians together we might have to have multiple conversations to get this done, but just kind of reflect on Second Corinthians together as Paul giving witness to the way he has passed through the fire, the way that that this has brought him to knowing, but that the First John and Ephesians are telling us the character of that knowing. Like once once you have unlearned what you need to unlearn and learned what you need to learn. Here's what, here's what you will know and what you will not know. I mean, one of the things that strikes me, Sherith, and what you were just reading, Ephesians 1, thinking about the terms you gave us at the beginning, authority, power, strength, weakness. Listen to the ways that those were used in the prayer you just read, right? God's immeasurable greatness, the, the immeasurable greatness of God's power. Right? So God is powerful, but beyond powerful in, in that power. And in the working of that power, which was it was reiterated again and again and again in this passage, in raising Jesus from the dead, he seats him at a place beyond all power. Mm. And anything that can even be named. So all of these things, strength, weakness, power, all of that is stuff. Life that, and death, yep, cruciformity. Actually, cruciformity gets held, but yeah, the contrast of either one. But they, But there are things that can be named. And where we're seated is beyond both strength and weakness. It's beyond both power and powerlessness. So it, it integrates them, but it transcends them. So it integrates in that cruciform way, strength and weakness, power and powerlessness. But it, then it seats us above it. And, and this is, so yesterday on Twitter, Brad and I were having a conversation about what it, the minds of God does, are there two minds in Christ as there are two wills? So this may seem unrelated at first, but let's let me let me share this and then Brad, I'm going to come to you with the question. All right. So we were talking about in the incarnation, if there are two natures, then there must be two wills. That's what Maximus sees. But there must also therefore be two minds in some sense. But what does that mean? Like Christ is not living with double consciousness in the way that we think of it or, or conflicted consciousness so i was writing this down yesterday after our talk brad and talking with a friend of mine about it 
So I said, in the Trinity, there are not three minds, but one. It's not the Father has his own mind, and the Son his own, and the Spirit his own, but there's there's a mind of God, right? And that mind is endlessly, supra-ineffably mysterious, even to itself, right? There's no end to, to God's mind, right? God does not know God exhaustively, because God is inexhaustible, even for God, right? Which is why in God there's constant surprise. God is surprised by God. And when Jesus takes our nature as his own, then, he's not making the divine mind knowable because it's endlessly mysterious, right? It's knowable, but inexhaustibly knowable. There's too much there to be known. So we're always knowing more, right? So when the divine mind is incarnated, it's not brought down to something we can grasp. Instead, it takes the human mind up into the ungraspable. It translates human knowing into true knowing. And this is this is how I wrote it. It makes the human mind finally, truly capable of knowing truly. When, when the divine mind is incarnated, when the divine one is in the flesh, now we can know truly. And Knowing truly means knowing the unknowable in a fitting way. So I'm, I'm sharing this with a friend as I'm trying to talk through it, Jordan. And Jordan writes back and says, the unknowable, knowing the unknowable in the most fitting way is precisely knowing in and through love. So think about First John, Jared, in light of what you said. Knowing the unknowable in a fitting way is knowing in and through love. Because, and these are now Jordan's words, because in the, in principle, the human mind is already formed by Christ's act through two minds, so that knowing in love is precisely knowing with the mind of Christ in us. That is, loving means knowing with God's self-knowing, knowing in the Spirit. Knowing just means knowing as God knows. So what First John and Ephesians are asking for, praying for, is to be taken up into the knowing of God. How, how can we know as we are known, to put it in the language of Scripture? That's what we're called to. So the fires then are burning until we know as we are known. And some of that is unspeakable, right? It's ineffable. It cannot be named because it's above everything that can be named, strength and weakness. But it also allows us to hold all the names together. So this is my question for you, Brad. Like, how, What do you hear in all of that? As we think about it Christologically, and how First John and Ephesians are related, is, is that a way of thinking about what God has for us, what is in store for us, is a burning that culminates in a knowing as we are known, knowing what can be known, rightly, but also knowing what cannot be known, because it's above every name. Yeah, uh, so uh, a couple of things were coming to me. I'm trying to grab them before they race off. I just picked the first one, I'll forget the second one. One moment. <laughs> yes. Okay, got it. So the, these are these may seem unrelated actually, but um the first one I want to cover is is so so in Plato, especially in the the in the Republic, he does three analogies. He does the undivided line, the sun, and the cave. And in all of these cases what he's doing and he explains what he's doing is a hierarchy of knowing 
Mm. He says the very lowest form of knowing. In fact, <laughs> at that time, it was pistis. It didn't mean faith as it means in the New Testament. 300 years before Christ, it meant opinion, like as in Facebook comments. <laughs> the lowest form of knowing. Yes. Like, like well, I believe. You believe yeah. what you believe. I believe what I believe because. Faith. Yes, exactly. Like a really, a, a really shallow form of opinion is a kind of knowing, but it's the lowest form of knowing. And then he moves up from there into kind of a, an empirical knowing, which is fine. What you can test in a lab, what you can touch, what you can see, what you can handle, and and in fact, First John references that there was a kind of empirical Handled. knowing. Of, of the glory of God, which, because we have real eyewitnesses who had, you know, smelled his breath and touched his, the hair on his, on his forearms and, you know, and then um, above that, he's, he, he talks about then uh, uh, reason. And this is the horrendous thing about translations of Plato. It, it keeps, they keep translating noesis as, as mind, mm. as reason, as rationality, and that's not the word that's used. And so basically what he's saying is it, up from the courtroom or up from the lab, you go to the courtroom or the math, the math chalkboard. And these are then the same kind of truths, but you can know them with your, with your head. You don't have to draw, you don't have to have a square in the room mm -hmm. to be able to conceive the square in your mind. Right. Um, you can use reason. This is a very good way of knowing. And then what Plato says is that doesn't get you out of the cave. The only thing that gets you out of the cave is uh, is a kind of contemplative knowing mm. that waits. And and you can so you have to wait at the mouth of the cave. And the light has to come to you. You can. We don't have a kind of knowledge that is a ladder up to the sun. You have to wait for the sun to shine on you so you can see its rays and feel its warmth. And it has to come to you. And this is the, this is the higher way of knowing. This is no, the knowing of the noose. So, um, and, and it's through the noose alone that it, it, it's this, uh, that, that you can begin to, that you receive. It's only it's receptivity that you can receive the eternals, the mm. eternal forms which are subsist in God as beauty, truth, and justice. But it's all from the capital G, good, which is God. Okay, so so you have this hierarchy of knowing. I bring all of that in to say, so Nietzsche is is misunderstanding this. I think Heidegger gets closer because he's thinking it's contemplative. It's contemplative knowing, and it's a higher way of knowing than reason. And it's mm -hmm. a way of knowing that requires receptivity, openness, attente in French, right? And then there, this is where Simone Weil comes. And she says, you will, never, <laughs> you will never understand this kind of knowing until you know that it is, that it is love. Yes. That's, it's not just contemplative. The, the 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 contemplative eye enlightened by light um is enlightened by love to see love to behold love to receive love and so she i think she gets it right maybe maybe plato didn't mean this but simon Weil means it and that is that it's that love is the highest way of knowing mm -hmm. and that that um 
and, and, and that it's love that is light is the metaphor for love. Now I take that into John, take it into the prologue. I take it into first John. And, and I love then as the Baptist in me that needs three alliteration words is this is, this is the, the love light and life of God. And, mm -hmm. and it, and, and how is it known? It's known by love. And so that's what I was thinking of. One other thing though. So I continually struggle when I'm reading about unknowing in terms of the tension between, and you can help me with this. You really can. The, the, uh, the tension between the radical unknowing that I see in Basil, the great, um, yeah. all the great apophatic theologians that puts God beyond beyond being even and that anything yeah. i say about god is probably not true because it because i'm creating a conception every time that yeah. may as well be the golden calf but my tension is jesus christ is the image of the invisible god yep yeah and that that are that that encountering him was to know God in this kind of as as being loved and loving and so that we have something to say about God after all but it's not conceptual it's a person who who hung on a cross and that kind of thing and so I always kind of flip between incarnation and apophasis you know <laughs> and that's so that there's my rant for the day yeah that, I think that's an important point share way in here and then I, I want to I don't want to lose this question here because i do think there's a way in which we can get attached we can cling to the form of our love for jesus i think about like mary in the garden the reason she's clinging to him is that she wants the jesus she has known and she cannot trust that if she lets that go that he'll be the same one and I, so I think we have to hear this tradition not as saying he will be a different Jesus, but that if you cling to what you've known of him, that's not Jesus. That's what you've known of him. So I think we, the unknowing is, is not a change in him. It's not him becoming something other than Mary's son that you know sounds like this and looks like this and feels like this. But it is different from what I imagine that to mean. It's always better than that. So, But I, I don't want to fix on that that now Jared, i'll let you let you respond first well i i'm wondering if um carl Rahner is helpful there right because he he will say brad to your point that well to both of your points that he says you know i think that when we finally see god face to face he says the one attribute that will remain always for us as creatures is his incomprehensibility mm -hmm. that's sort of final yeah final reality because he says even because as creatures, we will never comprehend him. We will just know him and be known by him. And that's a relational knowing, right? Ultimately, it's always a relational knowing in, in trust that then becomes relational knowing face to face. And so maybe what you're kind of getting at too, Chris, is if what we, if ever we think we've comprehended, that somehow we've grasped, yes. Yes. <laughs> part of the fire says, well, that's too small. Yes. And when it doesn't look like that, when you need it to look like that, and then you hold it against me, the living God, and it's killing you to do that. How about I burn that up 
Absolutely. And we put that to death so that you could come to life and be with me in the things that are doing that are living. And Absolutely. Like, as as a our friend Paul says here, this is like the wildest sentence I've just been living in this all week since since listening to you guys and reading this the other day. But he says, you know, this is the very end of 13. I'm second Corinthians 13. He says, look, you're demanding proof whether Christ is speaking through me. He goes, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is mm -hmm. powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, and this is the sentence, so crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealings with you. Mm, mm, and I'm like, mm. okay, wait, wait, wait. So I'm weak. <laughs> no. I'm, I'm weak with you in cruciformity. And the only way I can truly exercise power that is a love, right? Because he's just going to turn finally and go, okay, and may the grace, right? The merciful kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God. And I felt like this is how he's going to finish up this crazy de defense, yes. right? That he's been cornered into yes. because it doesn't look like the world. He's like, but but we are weak in Jesus. And we always think, well, Jesus, you're going to be the one who comes with your strength in my weakness. He says, no, God's power is being weak in Jesus. And we will live with Jesus in our dealings with you. And when, when you, we came to the end of our conversation the other day and like thinking about our crazy prophets that we've known and this despair of like, the, I just feel like, Lord Jesus, like, have I prayed mm. to live with you? in my dealings with them, that I would live with you in weakness over not being able to control that and not being able to actually change it. We can just keep loving and just keep speaking into the faithfulness of Man. loving. And so then Brad, just to um, one, to tie up one more little relationship between sort of incomprehensibility that no one would ever think that knowing is to live with him and in him in weakness as the living God resurrected but that finally then i'm just hearing first corinthians 2 and what you just said and and ephesians 5 where he's like okay it's the spirit who gives and he says the person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from god so as you said it has to require a receptivity we can't even go find the light to shine on our craziness or bring the fire to burn up the stuff that needs burning because mm -hmm. we probably don't even know that that's yep. what needs happening and so and how does he finish all of that out by having the mind of christ which only the spirit can give and then when he's asking them to exercise that in ephesians he says listen as you're sort of taking off all the old and putting on the new in the language of ephesians he talks about it a little differently right like you just can't be involved in any of that He's in, in the burning process, he says, you were not in darkness or in the cave. You were once darkness, hmm. but now you are light yeah. in the Lord. Not the light of God is shining on you. Right. Not you the darkness yeah. of your shadows in the cave are confusing you and you're getting mixed up by what you think is real. Like yes. only when the light comes when you become the habitation of the light 
then you also become light. And he says, live then as children. And I'm like, right back where you are. <laughs> like, to become the child is to live as children of light. And the fruit of the light consists in goodness, righteousness slash justice and truth. Mm -hmm. And then he says, and how do you finish that sentence? Find out what pleases the Lord, because he assumes that actually this is not apophatic knowledge, but it's knowing yeah. beyond knowing about it's knowing through relationship, which will never be finished either. And then finally, he just says this beautiful thing. He says, you don't have anything to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but expose them and not to put people in shame. He says, everything exposed by the light becomes visible oh, and goodness. everything that is illuminated, what? Becomes a light. Yeah. And then you're like, wow. So the gift of being burned up, the gift yeah. of being children of light is that actually you become the self-giving gift. And this is what Paul keeps saying in Second Corinthians. Like when we go through this, he's like, and all of this is for you. And everything that you're like, hate about the weakness piece in my life. You know what? I'm staying in it because it's for you. Because you're yeah. going to become this, right? If I will stay in this and not be wooed out of it and want to be a shiny object that you also really like, it will be not only to your glory and your refinement and your, what the final thing he even says is like that, that you would be restored for your restoration or reconciliation. But every time he says that, he's like, and then the whole, whole of God's people, the whole world will praise and give glory to God. Like literally they will see God because yes. you're light. You've become light. light. Yeah, you've become the, the light. I, man, there's so much going off in me here that I want to connect back to what Brad said about they and contemplation. I think one one way of thinking about all this, all of this comes together in the in the image scripture gives us of, of the erotic, our love for God. So just before our talk today, I was doing a podcast with someone and we were discussing Luke 7. And I'm just Pentecostal enough to think that was not an accident. So the very end of Luke 7, it's the story of the sinful woman, the woman of the city who is a sinner. And I want to say just a little bit about her story and then point to some of the connections I'm, I'm starting to hear and sense in, in what we've said so far. So as you remember, Jesus is almost certainly still in Nain, where he's seen this woman grieving her son. His heart goes out to her. He raises the boy. Right. And then he gets invited into the Pharisee's house. And in between those two stories, he gets interrupted by John's disciples. Are you the one or not? Right. And then Jesus makes this comment right in, in responding to the disciples of John. Wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Right. All of wisdom's children end up looking like their mother. That's the point. Right. And wisdom has many children. So then we come right out of that into the story of a woman who's, who seems like the foolish woman of Proverbs, the woman who's crying out the, the adulteress in the streets, right? But he's in this Pharisee's house, Jesus is. She comes in, she's carrying this box or jar of ointment. She stands behind Jesus, weeping, bathes his feet. She's so close to him that her tears are falling onto him, onto his legs and feet. And she's you know, letting her hair down, which is a, a breathtakingly stunning act, right, in that moment. She's intruded. She's exposing herself, back to the language of Ephesians, 
but she's become light. And this is what hit me today during that conversation that I'd never noticed before. Two things. She doesn't say a word. Because the love that she's feeling is so overwhelming. She's gotten past. There's nothing to say but what her tears can say. What her body can say. And what hit me today, and I don't even know if I could talk about it without... Uh, Tears are a good language, Chris, so please keep going. <laughs> is this is a woman, and it's not Mary Magdalene, it's, but she's almost certainly, Luke is almost certainly wanting us to identify her as a prostitute. This is a woman whose body has always been misread. It's being misread in this moment by everybody but Jesus. But she's getting to let her body speak to him in a way that's purifying every impurity that's been done to her. But she doesn't say a word. And to me, when we're talking about the unknowable, this is what we mean. Not, not the unknowable in some you know, philosophical sense, right? We're talking about so overwhelmed with gratitude and sweetness that ironically only the body can talk and only the tears right only her hair and her kisses right her and and how strikingly different her kiss is from judas's kiss right and from the kiss the pharisee doesn't give her but then i don't know how i'd never thought about this i'm all of this is welling up in me and i suddenly realize she's not asking for anything from jesus it's already been done. Jesus has all, she's sought him out because somehow he has already healed her. Mm. Like, I think I didn't realize it, but I had always thought of this story as her coming to him looking for forgiveness. But what he says is her sins have been forgiven. This is why she loves so much. Mm. That there's something that's happened off screen, so to speak between her and Jesus that nobody knows about but her and him. And it's unknowable in that sense too, right? It's out of reach of my awareness. And that's what carries her to this place in which she has no words. She's just weeping and anointing his feet. And I, I think that story brings to, to me, brings, puts flesh on what we're talking about here when we talk about a knowing that is a carrying into the way God knows us that's beyond every name that can be named, right? She's not named in the story. She doesn't say a word in the story, but she speaks the gospel, right, in the story. So let's reflect for a moment, Brad. I'll start with you on that story and how it kind of brings all these themes we've been discussing to focus for you. Yeah, well, we love him because he first loved us. Mm -hmm. And she's had that revelation somehow. Yes. Yeah. And then um, the, <clears throat> so there's one other image that I want to grab from Plato quickly because it relates here. And, and, and he actually says something we that has been proven scientifically, but he meant it probably metaphorically. And he's like the very light. And we're going to go with Dave's interpretation, the light of love that he says, the very light that created our eyes also fills our eyes and mm. then illuminates the things that we can see. I, I mean, the, so the love's all the way, it's, it's creative, 
and, and generative and and then and then and then it allows us to see it and i'm thinking that that's a good picture for her right so she has seen something and this is where um i especially feel like there's an east-west thing going on the further you move west geographically and religiously the more it's about the will the choice the hour of decision decision magazine choose you this day whom you will say so it's not on it's not foreign to scripture either right but the further east you go religiously geographically all of that the more it's about seeing awakening awareness so second corinthians uh chapter four that the the god of this a this world has blinded the eyes of unbelievers they cannot see then the god who said let there be light has said let there be light in our hearts and it's yes. not like he says that so we can hear the gospel. It's intrinsic to the gospel. There's a power in the gospel that opens eyes, right? And I've got to see in, this a bit. In the face of Christ, right? In the face of Christ, yeah. And 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 so here she is. I, I, I've got to see this a bit where just in sharing the unfailing love of God, you know, the gospel and chairs thing that, that he, the unfailing love of God, I've, I've watched, I've watched faces snarl up and then pop and then tears like shooting out of eyes hmm. and i'm like what's going on and i think it's second corinthians 4 and it's a it's a it is a damascus road experience it is a this this woman from uh outside of nain by the way nain i think means something like beautiful hmm. um but I, being having the light enter us the light of love enter us to see with the eyes of love it all hmm. just works and i think also the woman at the well you know um fatina that's her traditional name light yeah, the light, light bearer she's the mm -hmm. first she's the first evangelist to the samaritans and she's like um you know um here's this guy who knows everything and then and then and then jesus comes to town and then they're like wow like we believe the woman <laughs> right now that we've seen him now we really believe and so yeah. she goes off uh with her son or sons as a missionary and the 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 tradition is that she dies as a martyr in rome and that how does she die she's thrown down a well, well why mm. is she thrown down a well and it's like just renounce christ are you kidding me i met him at the well yeah and i've and uh and they're like well fine then you'll go down the well but it's like then i will you know like and it's just this the the kind of power of this love that the one who's seen the love experienced the love touched been touched by the love this is just a different order of knowing than than we've ever you know yeah i think i want to Jared, i want to ask you your reflections on that on the luke 7 text but like I, i'm struck by the fact that the pharisee wants jesus to talk so he says teacher talk to me yeah but that there's a there's a kind like he's interested in, in engaging the idea of Jesus. He's brought Jesus into his home to test to see if Jesus is a prophet or not. And he wants Jesus to do a sign for him. He, he's no different from Herod at the end of the day, right? Perform a sign for me. But what's happening between Jesus and this woman is of an altogether different order, right? And Jared, I didn't want to lose this point. What you just read from Ephesians 
the these unspeakable works of darkness, the things that happen that should not be spoken of, those things, when they're exposed by the light of God, they become light. And I, I think about how different the holiness of God is from our moralism. Right? So what I remember as a kid, one of the reasons I feared the judgment of God, I, I, I was terrified of hell, but I was much more afraid of God than I was of hell. And I was specifically afraid of the rapture and most of all of the judgment, because I imagined the judgment as God exposing me to everyone. Like, here's all of the secret, ugly, you know, and I'm six years old. Who, who, how many dark secrets did I have at six years old? I don't know. But years I spent in vanity and pride, <laughs> caring not my Lord was crucified. <laughs> That's, listen, the six-year-old. You said the, the other day, what the child knows, yes. the child knows. And to have a God that you thought was God like that, you know something is really horrible about that picture. Yeah, yeah exactly. And when I when I read this text now, that, that passage you just read, is to hear that whatever God exposes, he illuminates and transfigures. Amen. Like there is not there is no exposure from God that leaves the thing untransfigured. Yep. And what's happened with this woman, and the reason that she is the only way for this. For her to bring to expression what God has done is to do with her body the very thing that has mm. made her scandalous, but in a way that's purified, right? Mm. The, mm. the exposing now is revelatory, illuminating, and transfiguring. And what if that's what the judgment of God is, right? Is a is an act on us so that everything that has happened in our hearts and minds and bodies that wickedness did to us and pulled out of us gets exposed in such a way that that we are lit up with the light of God. So let's talk a little bit about that. And then I want to come to 2 Corinthians again. Okay. Um, I guess just two things. One, the, the first thing when you were talking about um, it being Luke 7, and I just like wrestling around the back of my Bible and realizing how close Nain is to Capernaum, to Nazareth. And I'm like, maybe she heard him. Hmm. Maybe she heard Luke 6. Yeah. Which yeah, is the yeah, center yeah. of your fight, right? Like she could very easily have wow. been on the outskirts of hearing the very thing that we're, we're here. Yeah. Right? Is that the wow. gospel, because it, otherwise you're kind of like, well, maybe the Lord, like by the Spirit, just like speaks to her depart. But I'm like, she's right there. Yeah. And she's probably like got to go cover up so she doesn't get shamed in the company of many people, but she's able somehow God has been present. So just that's a curiosity, but that's I would wonderful. love to think that this woman who we're loving today as our sister got to hear these words in person that mm -hmm. we're thinking about in Luke 6 as and well. They happened to her, right? She didn't just hear them. She exactly. heard them. God met her, right? Like, and, and it heard makes them. her want to go and not be afraid, right? Where, where Paul says, Look, the stuff that's like the deeds of darkness, like it's shameful that people even want to keep them in the dark because they know that to want to keep them there is because they're they're deadly, right? Yes. And he's like, if if God illuminates them, they lose that power of death and they they become illuminations for the sake of the others. So she's already been exposed to the life of light and the light of life. And then, as you said, I've never thought of that as she sort of brings her exposed body into this space. I think the 
the thing that sort of strikes me there, oh, but Brad, I needed to do what you just did, which is to remember both my things there. While you're gathering that thought, yeah, Sarah, go ahead. You don't, don't forget it. I need to mention William Glass, whom I, I was quoting him. It was his paper on authorship of Hebrews that we started with yesterday, but he wrote his dissertation on Mary. And in his dissertation, he makes this observation. It took my breath away when I read it the first time. And that is Jesus is perhaps the only powerful man in history that we know of of whom there is no record of a woman being afraid. Amen. Jesus is this incredibly powerful figure. And women like this woman get audacious, right? She in, breaks into this Pharisee's house, takes down her hair. I mean, think about Mary and other Marys, Martha. I mean, again, over Jesus does whatever it is about him. As powerful, and he's powerful enough to get himself killed, right? He's powerful enough to stir up the wrath of Pilate and Herod and Caiaphas and all the gods of this world. But he's weak enough that it uh, emboldens these these women who are utterly mistreated, right? I mean, this it's a, it it truly staggers me to think this is a woman who's never been able to choose a man. Like every choice has been made for, for her. But now she's, I mean, absolutely emboldened to do what's in her heart to do. And if you, if, I mean, that, what, what's to say about that other than I, oh, I love Jesus? Like, I know. And so that brings me to my second thought there was that the thing about um, dehumanization, which, you know, uniquely in this situation is hers, is that we see people as objects instead of subjects, mm. right? And somehow she's been seen by Jesus. So let's just play with the idea that she's heard the voice of the living God yeah. see her in the poverty of, you know, blessed are you. Yeah. And somehow she hears blessing on her situation that when light shines, she is welcomed in the presence of God. Whereas judgment, right? Like this Pharisee's like, if only he knew, he would judge her. And she's like, oh no, he actually knows. Doesn't know me. And yeah. he sees me. And so somehow she comes into that space as a subject instead of an object of someone else's gaze. But it's not about her. It's the truthfulness of humanity that says my humanity, my subjectivity as a person, I can trust myself as a subject in the presence of Jesus. Yes. And I can be my full self. And my full self in this moment is wordless. It's tearful. It's exposed. It's messy. And I am fully entrusted to him because I can, for the first time, probably trust a man yeah. who have seen me and know me and love me, not to have seen me as an object for self-gratification, but as self-giving, as the, as the subject of shared self-giving love. And that she then becomes the light with him in that space, right? Like she, the whole rest of the thing is, well, did they really know? And like the decide, like he's like, let's just look at her, right? Like this is, this is who she is. She's the light who's gonna tell you what God looks like in my company today. And 
so I just think it comes full circle in that beautiful way. That's gorgeous. Brad, you're going to weigh in, I think. I, this is like Hagar, right? I've seen the God who sees me. Yeah. It's also it's also Ruth, right? It's Ruth coming to the feet of Boaz, right? In in the middle of in the middle of the night. You know, this is this is a mother in Israel. Jesus is the only one who knows that, but but she is a mother in Israel. And I think it, it goes to, you know, back to the terms that we started with. Is Jesus being powerful here or weak? Is he being strong? Is he being powerless? Yes. <laughs> like, like all of that and more than that, right? And I think that that brings to bear this, this way, kind of where we started with, in Christ, the divine and the human are one. The knowable and the unknowable are one, and they're integrated and transcended in a way that leaves nothing behind, right? That, that leaves nothing good behind. And that is precisely the movement of the fire that consumes everything that needs to be consumed, or mm. the shaking that shakes everything that needs to be, needs mm. to be broken. Mm. And I, I love thinking too about this. Oh, good. I, I, just one note. I love thinking about this as Jesus bring, I was talking with a friend this morning, a pastor who's preparing to preach on Sunday, and I heard myself say to him, when Jesus says, I am the, the gate or the door, he means the door we have to pass through to meet the poor people who will save us. But I think what's happening here is the opposite move, in that Jesus has come into this Pharisee's house because he knows the only way this Simon is ever going to be saved is to see this woman differently, right? Yeah. So Jesus has opened up a space in this man's house for the unthinkable to happen, the unspeakable to be done. Because until this man readjusts himself to the mystery of God that's ineffable, he'll still think, he'll always think that his words are enough, right? He wants Jesus to talk because he he's learned a way of talking that gives him control. He knows where this woman belongs. He knows what a prophet can do. He knows what is acceptable to God. His mm -hmm. words give him that power. But this woman's wordlessness that Jesus makes room for calls all of that into question. And if Simon, I mean, we I, what I hope is what happened to this woman in the previous chapter <laughs> happens to Simon before the story is over, right? That Simon realizes, oh, wait, I'm the one with the greater debt. I thought that she was the one with the great dead, and that's why she's overcome. No, no, no. Like, I'm the one who's who has the Lord in his house and is judging him. I'm the one who has the mother of Israel in his house, has Hagar and Ruth in his house, and is judging her. Like, that's the greater, greater sin. Which I guess, uh, to bring us back to the talk that you guys had the other day, is it feels like actually she represents the blesseds and the Pharisee in that household represents the woes. Yes. Yes. And Brad, I was thinking a lot about, you said that like the woes, you cannot diminish the import, right? Because, mm. because we have to recognize that it's not just, you know, well, too bad for you, right? Like woe on you. Cause you'll get yours later. It's like, no, if you don't hit bottom sooner than later, the consequences of your inability to see and the failure of the fire to burn this stuff up, the consequences play out 
among the generations, right? And so when I think about think about this guy, right, whose household, when the Pharisee had invited him, saw him, woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Mm. Woe to you who are well fed now, right, at this table where you'll go away hungry. Woe to you who laugh now at her, at Jesus mm. in weakness, mm. for you will mourn. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, which is not going to happen with Jesus from this situation, right? But and now he's like, why did I invite him to my house except to make him a fool? For this is how the ancestors treated their prophets, exactly what happens to Jesus. Wow. So it's like this wild, like exegesis of that passage or kind of the hermeneutic. But but at the same time, it it comes back to what you guys also said the other day, which is, or at least it made it stirred it up in me, which is I have read those woes in that kind of, well, you've kind of received what this world already has to offer and you know those who don't have it at least they get the real thing from the lord right in the in mm -hmm. you know thin reading of the beatitudes but there was a compassion that came through by the way that you guys were talking yesterday or the other day that was so much the voice of the lord because what i really heard and the way that you were also using the 12 step language brad was it is a woe it's a tremendous sorrow because the higher up you lift yourself, the higher our self-exaltation is, the higher our egoism is, the, the more we resist the fall because the fall is so much higher, yeah. lower, right? Like it just, it, it takes so much more time and there's so much more at stake. There's so much to lose that mm -hmm. we resist bottoming out or it just takes a really long time to actually find the real bottom because we have so many layers that have got us up to that point. And, and that somehow I thought the, the invitation, even in the woe is you think you have already received comfort. Woe to you. It's not that you've really received it and someday you're going to find out it wasn't. Yes, but, right. Yes. Right. But you don't even know. Not known comfort yet. That yeah. you haven't known comfort. Mm -hmm. But the poor in spirit know something you don't know. It's not just You've they will someday the world, they right? already they, have they already have one and you think this is all there is on offer yes this pharisee thinks this is all yahweh is going to do is give him another like star in his report card for doing whatever he does right as a pharisee in the world but that that it was just this sort of like woe to you who are well fed now because you will go hungry you think that you never will. And it's not like God's gonna curse you to go hungry That's later. Right. You're right. gonna find out that this thing you think is gonna feed you at some point, you can't get enough because yeah. the more you have, you will never be enough. And yeah. there was just this, this great sadness that was also kind of, so can you come down and hit bottom? Cause you're gonna hear me knocking as you said, Brad, like you're gonna hear the knock below yeah. you. And I'm like, welcome to the real party like now i can turn the burner on and and you're going to be so grateful right that you can finally be set free and so so i don't know why but just coming listening as you were talking and then this last couple of days i was like this just helps me listen to paul's both sorrow and frustration and weariness and also like relentless i'm not moving from this position even though, and yeah. 
out of so much love for these people who think they've already arrived in all the woes kind of like, but, but spiritually arrived and just be like, you, you who God loves cannot remember the story that you're in. And you're, you're bringing in all the stuff that is now not just doing this to me, to ask whether I have any credential to speak to you and whether my way of speaking to you in this cruciform way, right? Which is going to ask you to to look at my life and not go, well, clearly God is not with him, Mm. right? Which we do with ministries all the time, right? Right. Like, well, that doesn't have the evidence of a successful ministry. When Paul's like, well, actually it looks so thick and much like Jesus that I can't leave it. And it's the only story there is. And what concerns me most as the one who is a father to you who are children who have moved into childishness instead of childlikeness is that this is your only story too. And so how can you read off of my life as a light (laughs) that's going to illumine stuff for you? Things that I could have said all the same stuff before I actually encountered him. And he said, Saul, I know you, right? And you are persecuting me, but I give you your life back. Like, all of those underlying themes of watching him talk about the the beautiful way that he does right at the beginning of like one through nine which both presses into like what do we get to see and one through five just this the the yeah we'll talk about that but but i think it's been weirdly it was these last couple of chapters of watching him go okay and I, as I'm going through commentaries, they call it the fool's speech, right? I don't know why, it's just a term, I guess, that the commentators are doing it, but they call it Paul's um, fool's speech. But I want to just add this one little piece in here, because it says that when Paul's talking about like his own, um, that if, if ever there was a weakness, he too is like praying, Lord, please deliver me from this, like, like this thorn, this kind of um, stake. And he says, This is um, the commentary I'm reading Paul Barnett because it was the closest one to my show. And he says, against the possibility that Paul too could have had religious pride in terms of the abundance of his revelation that he would be overlifted or Mm self-exalted egoism. It says, God has, okay, here's the language. God has pinned Paul to the earth. Wow. So I'm thinking about the way you finished the, like, yeah, God, yeah, yeah. bring us back down to earth, to, to bring ground. us to the fire. Yeah. Says, God has pinned Paul to the earth with the unidentified stake or thorn, the scallops. At that time, Paul had prayed for its removal and the Lord effectively replied in the negative. It says, thus, having given them a revelatory story without a revelation, he now gives them a healing story without a healing. And finally, in an astonishing and expected turn, Paul declares that he boasts of his weakness, confident that it is in this circumstance that Christ's power will not only rest on him, but that he will become the temple. Yes. His weakness becomes the true temple of the God who shows up Mm. as the God who manifests himself in weakness, right? And so then it just, this last little sentence, it says, um, the verse is powerfully intentional. Each of the elements of thorn, revelation, overlifted, it says the sclopos will give to Paul, um, will be given to Paul lest he be overlifted. And then it said, 
so I, I just went back to what you guys were describing in terms of solve 12 six that that the furnace on the ground that God grounding us it says Paul has been brought down to earth it just it, he repeats this several times in the course of these several three pages but it's like, brought down to like earth. But, but brought down the earth in the best sense of the word like but in your true humanity what other way is there except weakness? In your true humanity, whatever way, other way is there except cruciformity? In your true humanity, what other way is there except childlike death and resurrection? In your true humanity, what other way would it be but self-giving love for the sake of the other, which this community forgot to do? So anyway, I just, well, I've just been very struck. So I'm going to speak quiet now because I've been hanging no, no, out. No, no, no. I think we need to do I think we need to do another conversation just on Second Corinthians as a kind of proving of this. But I do have to run for now because I have to get to the to the family. But Brad, why don't why don't you wrap up this conversation? Reflect a little bit on that, what Sherith was just saying, especially about being pinned to the earth. And I, I've got to share this part. Thinking about the themes that have emerged today, I think of being pinned down, like three images are coming to mind for me. One is recently in the airport, there was a, a child. He was, if not an adult, he was near an adult who was severely autistic. And you know how the, sometimes the alarm will go off if the door is kept open for the, you know, at the gate and it, it triggered him and he was thrashing and his mother pinned him to the ground but there's no violation there, right? She's protecting him. So one thing I think we have to hear when, when God pins us to the ground, one way of thinking about it is, you know, we're, we've lost control and God is, is gathering us, right? Another image though, that hits even closer to home is that's what wrestling with, you know, I remember as a boy wrestling with my dad and him pinning me to the ground and I'm laughing, right? I'm powerless. He's overpowered me, but what's coming up? is not terror, but delight, right? Because that strength that is taking me out of my strength is emboldening me. I'm this man's son. He's for me. And he's for me. Like all of that strength that's on me now is mine. And if we could feel that, right, in, in the ways in which God overpowers us, right, that it is ours, and Paul is being pinned to the ground, and that's where all this boldness is coming from with Paul. Right. It's my not strength, says Jesus. My strength is sufficient yeah. for you, right? This weakness, like, yeah, 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 that's the language. Yeah. Brad. If I can hear God at all, you just said that's a great way to end the meeting. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> There's a lot riding on that if. <laughs> I love you both very much. Likewise, thank you so much for letting me jump in. <laughs> I, I do think you should post this. That was that was rich and it was coherent and it had a flow, direction, takeaways, everything. That's okay. my opinion. Thank you, Brad. I love you both. Pray for us and for the family, if you would. Will do. Will do. Brad, do you have a minute to stay on? Or Chris, if you get out, should I just call Brad? Yeah, I think it'll end it to end the recording, but okay. thank you guys. All right, okay. give me a call. Thanks.